Welcome to the Places Where We Go podcast. Hello, I'm Julie. And I'm Art. We're the hosts of the Places Where We Go podcast. Join us as we share our travel stories. We'll tell you about where we've been, what we saw, and what we did. We're always looking for a bit of an adventure. Sometimes we travel far. Sometimes we explore the places in our own local backyard. Wherever we go, we'll let you know about the highlights and top tips to help you plan your future adventures. This is the Places Where We Go podcast. Welcome back, and we're with you to talk about our last adventure in the state of Montana on our recent trip to the area. So if you've been following along with us, this uh, last summer we had a trip to Glacier National Park and decided while we're in the state of Montana that we were going to go see some other things to see in the state. So last episode we talked about visiting Helena, Montana, and after leaving that city, I only had one more thing on our itinerary to see. It was a place that I identified in the National Park Passport book, and I really didn't know anything about it, quite honestly, other than it's part of the National Park system. And this would be the big whole national battlefield. So this would be our next main stop and really our last main stop again on the itinerary so we left helena one morning and got in the car and started to make our drive and i had put in the big hole national battlefield into ways so that we would have some aid in navigation yeah. yeah and somewhere along the way i remember we started to see signage on the main highway that we were driving on and one of the signs basically said to take this off-ramp on this other road to get to Big Hole National Battlefield. And I it must have had a mileage indication. So we came up, I saw it first, and so I kind of mentioned it to you. And it wasn't, I don't remember the exact number of miles, but it wasn't a lot. I just remember it was less than what Waze was projecting that we would still need to drive. So we, we made a really quick decision and said, hey, if there's another way to get there that's fewer miles, let's take this road. Yeah, and it was actually off the highway we were on. We made a, we made a turn onto a different road. Yeah. So I believe the road that we turned onto was Highway 43. And then an interesting thing happened shortly after we turned onto this road. And I don't remember ever running into this with ways in the past, but we're, we're driving on this Highway 43, very rural area, kind of picturesque. It was a kind of overcasty, yeah, foggy day, beautiful scenery. And then all of a sudden, ways went blank. Mm-hmm. And it basically, well, it started to tell us first that the road was going to stop in two miles or something. Mm-hmm. And so as we're driving, we're thinking, oh my gosh, what's... What's going to happen? And and you know, and very unlike us, we took the chance. Yeah, because we usually do what Waze tells us to do. Yeah, well, you do. But yeah. I kept saying, yeah. let's just keep going. Let's just keep going. And, and Yeah, because there was a sign that said, this is the way. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So we kept driving. And sure enough, after whenever Waze said the road was going to end, Waze ended. But the road mm-hmm. kept go- going. That's so weird. So we kept driving and... Um, I kept every now and then glancing over at Waze to see if it had any idea where we were, and it would remain blank until we were probably within just a few miles 
a yeah. big whole national battlefield. Yeah. Um, and after close to a three-hour drive from Helena, we arrived at Big Hole National Battlefield, an area kind of like in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, as we were driving, as you said, the scenery was absolutely beautiful. Uh, lots of just rolling hills and spotted with ranch houses here and there and some cattle. And it was just the, the land was just this huge expanse mm-hmm. of pretty much nothing. We got to a little town at some point. And I think that's just about when Waze started kicking in. Yeah. And I have no idea what this town was called. Yeah, I'd have to look it up on a map. Yeah. Don't have it in the moment. Yeah, very small, very tiny. And we just went right through it. Mm -hmm. And a few miles down from that town, we ended up at the Big Hole National Battlefield. And there is a signage there that tells you that you're there. And you turn in and... Down a little bit from the turn-in, you can see the building, which is the visitor center. Yeah. So as we were approaching this place, and as I had told you that this was the last main stop on the itinerary, did you know anything about Big Holt National Battlefield? Oh, I had no idea. You told me about it. I, I said, I, I have no idea. Yeah. I never heard of it. I think I even said, what do you mean, Big Horn? Because yeah. I knew that was in the area, too. And well, in said, the state. No. Yeah. Yeah. And you said, no, big hole. And I had no idea. Yeah. So that makes two of us. So we're pretty sure that we never got exposed to this in history classes, be it in junior high or high school or whenever. So something new for us, which we always like new and to be able to experience something like this firsthand in terms of being at the place versus just reading about it on a page in a book. Oh, completely. Yeah. Utterly different experience when you're there. So what is this place, Julie? I would very, very highly recommend that you stop at the visitor center first. It's a very small little visitor center, but they have lots of exhibits and lots of information about the battle and the people that were involved in the battle. So it's packed full with what you'll need to know as you enter into this area. Now the visitor center overlooks the battlefield. So you read about it and you look up and you see the exact area where this happened. And there's a feeling of, um, for me anyway, there was a feeling of, I guess, um, something big happened here. This big event happened here. And it was a tragedy. I remember first, you know, when we were in the visitor center, just with starting to soak up the information to try to get a sense of where are we and why is this noted as a special place. And I, I seem to recall most of the stories that I was reading or the ones that kind of captured me the most were the ones from the Indians. I found myself being really drawn into their story, their recollection, their memories and their perspective on surviving and moving on after such a tragedy. I wasn't reading about this sense of a need for revenge, but kind of the spirit of moving on and making the most of what was ahead of somebody, which kind of reminded me a little bit of And there's different perspectives on this, but we've mentioned this in the past on the podcast before, both of my parents coming from Poland and being in a situation where 
other countries came in, took everything from them, right. took their land, took their homes, took their livelihood, took their valuables. And from that point forward, they had to make their way basically from scratch. And it always intrigued me when I was a kid that some of those people that went through that experience, and my dad would have been like the main model for me, didn't have the hate, didn't have the animosity, even though that there was this tragedy mm-hmm. that happened. And so that, right. that I found interesting. And I'm sure that there is among you know ancestors who reflect on this, there's got to be a sense of I mean, a true sense of the injustice that happened. I mean, you can't escape that. Yes. They do not live in what happened in the past, but they do recognize it through their oral traditions and their oral histories. Yeah, they remember it. They memorialize it. Yeah. 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 So it's very, very important to them, but they don't stay there because... You have to survive. Mm-hmm. And and I think that for a lot of people that have been through these type of horrors, you hear many, many times the story of now it's survival time. We have to do the next thing so we could survive this. Yeah. Instead of staying in that place and not moving forward. So we read the placards, we read the stories, and then they told us the... Um the rangers who were in there, that it might have been like every hour there was a movie that played in a small right. theater. Right, a 26-minute movie. Yeah, so we stuck around to see that. Yeah, we stuck around because the, he highly recommended it, and I'm glad we did. It was very, very informative. They told the story, and you, you know, you can read things and get a perspective on it, and then when you hear it orally, it kind of put it all together. You have... A different understanding, I think, when you hear the story being spoken. And I just remember hearing the stories from the descendants in this movie. They had a lot of people who were descendants, and they told their stories. And I, I just thought it was so moving. There was a sense of grief still for these people. And one of them was a, just a young lady, and she had been told by her grandparents and her parents that when you go here you will hear them crying and that's totally stuck out to me and i'll tell you why as we move forward into this tour that we took so a synopsis about this battle so this battlefield that's preserved in this area is a memorial to the people who fought and died in the place on august 9th and 10th in 1877 about 750 non-treaty Nez Pierce were fleeing from U.S. Army troops, and the troops were charged with enforcing the government's demand that all of the Nez Pierce move to a reservation that was a fraction of the size of their traditional homeland. And in doing so, the Army was enforcing, trying to enforce a national policy of placing all American Indians on reservations to make way for states. And then it turned out that just before daybreak on August 9th, 1877, military forces attacked these Indians as they were resting after six weeks of conflicts that had been happening and as they were fleeing from military forces. So, you know, you imagine there was this field, there was several dozen teepees, 
and inside the and teepees, the water, there was water between them. Yeah, the, there was between a, there the was hillside a, and and their a water source nearby. Right, but yeah. but the Indians were they were in their teepees. They were sleeping. They didn't expect it. They right. thought they were safe. I'm trying to picture, they had gone to bed, sleeping in the teepees were Indian men, women, children, babies, and then just before dawn, all hell breaks loose with gunfire from the hills above. And um, when everything was said and done, 90 Nest Pierce were killed on this land, along with 31 soldiers and volunteers. Because they fought back, which was not what the U.S. soldiers expected. They expected to be able to just round them up and take them to the reservation. Even the first bullet, the first gunfire that happened, was not ordered it was there were civilians with the u.s soldiers and one of the civilians is the one who started the gunfight yeah it just sounded like as we were learning and hearing about the story just an absolute disaster yeah, and an absolute yeah. mess that resulted in a horrible tragedy and today the battlefield remains as a place of honor to everyone who was there so as you complete the visitor center and the movie, which I highly recommend, you'll get in your car and you'll drive down to another area as you're leaving the visitor center that's to the right and it takes you to another parking lot. And at that parking lot, there are two trailheads, one that leads to the Nez Pierce encampment and the other one leads to where the soldiers were burrowed down as the fight was raging. So you're getting two different stories. As you go along, there is a little booklet that you can use that explains the numbered markers that are on both of these trails. And you can read as you hit number one marker, you read what happened there. And then you hit number two marker and it goes further into what happened as you get closer to either side, either where the soldiers were or where the Nez Pierce were. And it was interesting because it kind of took you on that little bit of a journey as you're walking in and immerses you in that history before you even get to that final destination. Mm -hmm. So I really like that. And I yeah. really recommend people stop and read those points of interest before you keep moving in. Yeah. As we're talking about this, it just struck me that as far as I can remember, I think this is like the first and to date the only battlefield in the country that I have visited and been in to. The US. Yeah. Because yeah. I imagine people that have visited the East Coast and live on the East Coast, there's numerous battlefields there that probably span from the American Revolution through the Civil War. So people on the eastern side of the country probably have had an experience of visiting maybe multiple places where there was battles. This is, again, I think the only one that I can recall and just um, a very impactful visit. Yeah, so we decided to take the trail that led to the Nez Perce encampment first. Although, I would highly recommend taking both. As we entered into it, I was just getting totally immersed in what was being told and the history that was being told as we were moving forward into it. And you come upon the actual site of the encampment and the descendants of the Nez Perce have made a memorial there. So you see these um, stick teepees, several of them, 
that are erected as a memorial to their ancestors. And as you walk through it, it kind of loops around. And as you walk through this encampment, you'll see many places, especially where they identified that their chief stayed and some of the other very recognized within the Nez Perce, very recognized ancestors uh, in their tribe. And there's trinkets and there's stuff that's left there in honor of these people that once lived there or once were encamped there. And so you just take your time and you walk through and they'll tell you some of the names of the Nez Perce that were killed. They'll tell you the stories of a U.S. soldier that found women and children nestled under in the water, nestled under some grass, and the woman saying, I'm a woman, I'm a woman, and he spared her life and those with her. So there's all kinds of different stories that you hear. I think what's really interesting to me is the preservation of these stories that were told by the Nez Pierce that have been preserved down through time. And that's what amazes me, that you still have even that story of the soldier that spared the lives of the Indian women that were hiding. That's something that's oral history. That's something that has been transferred from generation to generation. And you know that there's probably been some part of it that has been maybe a little turned or a little skewed in some way, but I think it's pretty well preserved. I really think that they've they know how to do that. That's how they live through their oral history. Mm -hmm. So it was really very, very impactful. And as I entered into this encampment, I remembered the girl in the movie that says, you can hear them cry. And I can tell you that you can. We moved out of that area and we took the soldier's route, Mm -hmm. which was totally different And we came up to parts of where they had buried themselves in because the Nez Perce fought back. They did not just take this and they grabbed their rifles and they started fighting back. And they literally pushed the soldiers back across the waters back into this hillside where they actually dug themselves in and they were there all night. And some injured And there were stories of some of the soldiers that were crying and moaning in pain because they were hit and there was nobody there to help him. And no doctors, nothing. The doctor had been shot and killed. So it was another experience where you got the sense of such great tragedy on both sides. Yeah. And I'm glad we did both. Mm -hmm. I think it was well worth it. Yeah, when you mentioned that, you know, you should do both, I think this is one of those places where it's easy to try to take in the story and then walk away with an immediate opinion of who's the good guy, who's the bad guy, and try to very, you know, black and white kind of paint that kind of picture. But as almost anything in life is... When you start peeling back onion skins, there's more to stories. And you and I, we spent some time after we walked on both of the trails, just asking ourselves questions about, you know, why do you think this side did this or this side reacted this way? And one of the things that's important about preserving history, both the good as well as the bad and the horrible, 
is I think it provides a chance to try to get into people's heads and try to understand what their motivations were. And when you start to erase history and because we start to see some of that in our lives today, I fear that we're going to lose the ability to try to understand why some of the evils have happened. And you got to preserve that to try to not have that happen again, Mm -hmm. I think. Yeah. You know, another thing that struck me as we were making our journey through here, it struck me as a almost like a spiritual type of experience. I mean, we we took a lot of time. You mentioned the book. We stopped at every marker. You read the entire story as we were going through mm-hmm. this. Out, out loud, I read yeah. each thing. Yeah. When we were walking on the land where this thing happened and taking the time to understand the story, it just made just such an impact. And one thing that I found, I I found odd, and I don't know if anybody else would, but I did even ask one of the rangers inside, and the answer didn't quite work for me. But given what had happened here, you you visit there today, and the people who are manning the place, the visitor center, etc., they're employees of the National Park Service. And it struck me odd that there wasn't on staff and as part of the people who are preserving this legacy, the Ness Pierce, because there are survivors of the Ness Pierce. You mean descendants? Descendants, mm-hmm. yeah. And it would be both partly impactful for me as a visitor, as well as I think a way for the descendants to continue to honor their ancestors by being part of the people who day in, day out are able to tell directly from the descendants perspective, mm-hmm. share the story. I, I don't know. I, I think they tried to do that in the sense that there was a book. Well, the movie. There was the movie, yeah. but there was also a book that had each descendant that they could find or that wanted to participate. They had their story and who they were related to. Yeah. And I think there's an attempt to do that there. I also think the Nez Pierce were moved to a reservation and it was out of this area. Mm -hmm. And some of them escaped to Canada and they stayed there. But most that escaped to Canada came back because there was conflict in Canada. So they, they were pretty much homeless. So a lot of them ended up at this reservation, which was not near that area. Mm -hmm. And they do stay together. Um, there's not a lot of the tribes that move away from each other and move on and separate. They are very culturally linked together and they do stay together. Yeah. So somebody would actually have to move to the area in order to work there. Mm-hmm. And that might have proved somewhat difficult. Yeah. And again, it's, it's a very much in the middle of nowhere place. Yeah. But the one analogy that I would provide several years ago, probably like a du- almost a dozen years ago, you and I visited the USS Iowa mm-hmm. battleship, mm-hmm. which is harbored in San Pedro. And when we visited there, there were docents on the ship who had served in World War II and had served on the ship. And to me, to be able to have encounters with them and hear their stories made that visit particularly impressive. Mm-hmm. And you know, we're approaching a time where unless we're almost already there where, you know, the final survivors of World War II in terms of the fighters. Yeah, they're almost all gone. Mm -hmm. So I wonder, you know, as that happens, if places like the USS Iowa might bring in 
the children who can share the stories of their fathers who were on the ship. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's it's that kind of thing. Is, Depends on the dynamic of the family. Did yeah, he share with his children? Right, because yeah. some do, some don't. But when, you, when you're when you able to get a side of a story from somebody who has a family connection, it just makes things a little more personal mm-hmm. for me. Yeah. So anyways, Big Hole National Battlefield, there is no entrance fee to visit. They do have a donation if you wish mm-hmm. to. Yeah. And the park is open from sunrise to sunset year-round other than Thanksgiving, Christmas, and New Year's Day. One final thought for me, this continues to be one of the most meaningful places I think I've ever visited, like of, of any place. In the U.S.? or no, of, of, any, of any place. It made that much of an impact for me. I mean, part of it probably because... I didn't know what we were going to walk into. Mm-hmm. I just had my national park passport book. There was a map of Montana mm-hmm. and there was, you know, number 33, 34, 35. And I'm, I'm trying to check off the box and mm-hmm. we were in the States. I wanted to get as many of them as possible. And then we get there and it was like this, oh my gosh moment, had no idea. And, well, and just it, was got the a- it was the actual battlefield. I mean, I yeah. think that was, was very impactful. Yeah. I just got so drawn into yeah. the story. I felt that way in Poland, a few places we went in Poland. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think when we were in Gdansk in Poland, Mm -hmm. and on some of the areas where World War II broke out, and you got to see... The post office. Yeah, where the shots were fired, the the walls where the hands were put up, and people were shot in the back, and Mm -hmm. yeah, Yeah. when you're there, it just... It's very impactful. yeah, yeah. All right, so we were done with our visit there. It was one of those things that we left thinking for quite a while about this battle and what it meant for both sides. Mm -hmm. It was something we discussed, and so it's someplace I would recommend highly. Yeah, absolutely. I think this this would be a place, if you're in the state of Montana, even if it's going to be several-hour drive, be it from Glacier National Park or another part of the state, it's very very worth it to take the time to visit there and do take the time to immerse yourself in the story Mm -hmm. so in the car we go in the car we go and again this was like the last main thing on the itinerary but we had flown in initially to montana to kalispell which was Mm -hmm. our entry point into glacier national park so we would be flying out of kalispell and there was a city between big hole in Kalispell that seemed that it might be a good place to stop for, I think we stopped for two nights, yeah. and that was Missoula. And, you know, so far we had pretty interesting stops in Great Falls, in Helena, in, you know, a number of places, and then Missoula would be the last city that we would spend a couple of nights in. Mm-hmm. So I think a, a few more hours in the car, we found ourselves in Missoula. And, um, yeah, my initial impression of Missoula just unlike any other place we were in Montana Suburban. was, yeah, just suburb USA. <laughs> yeah. It had its little historical section. Kind of a downtown. Yeah. 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 But overall, it just felt like suburb with big box stores and uh, a little bit of a letdown for me, just because I like when you do get that history. older history. And the, and, yeah. Yeah. And again, there was some of it. And there was some of it, but I think there was a lot more that they've lost because they've allowed... Too much of the suburban way of life to come in. Yeah. 
modern America has creeped into this yeah. landscape. Yeah. But we did find one particular thing to do while we were staying in Missoula that did provide a sense of history. And so on our, well, basically, I think on our full day in Missoula, we went out to see the Fort Missoula Museum, which is kind of in the heart of the city. Big place, big park area, lots of land in the area. 32 acres. Yeah, but they also have preserved some of Missoula's history by bringing in historical buildings to the area. Some of them come from different areas. Some of them were original to the area, but it was one of those things where they were spread apart over this land and you had a walking path and you would just take this walking path and visit each of these areas. Kind of like an open air type yeah, of museum. Yeah, it reminded me of uh, St. Fagan's Museum when we were in Wales because they had brought in these structures onto this huge open land area and it had a path and you walked along and you visited these structures. There wasn't as many as St. Fagan's Museum had as far as structures Yeah, that go. place was spectacular. It was huge. Yeah, it yeah. was huge. Yeah. But it had that sense, mm-hmm. that same sense yep. about it. And um, it had a history, uh, a fort history about the Missoula Fort. And it had some things that acquired a fee it was... I think the indoor buildings. Just the in, well, just the one indoor well, building. The museum. The museum kind of, part of right, it. Right, right. So there was a fee attached to that. I don't think it was very much, though. Yeah, but the grounds themselves were free. They were open. Yeah, yeah. So you just went from structure to structure. Mm-hmm. The early Fort history date backs to 1877. In the midst of all these Indian wars, for example, the Big Hole battle, and... It also has the exploits of the African American 25th Infantry Bicycle Corps, which was, that was fascinating. Mm-hmm. I had no idea about that. And it also had some history on the World War II internment camp that once held over 2,200 Italian and Japanese nationals. Yeah, I had known, because we live in California, about Manzanar, that that was an internment camp for the Japanese and then was somewhat surprised when we were at this place to learn how many more internment caps. Several. Yeah, there, there yeah. were at least a dozen, I yeah, think. Yeah, at least. Yeah. yeah. So another not great moment in American history. <laughs> yeah. But that's what makes history is the good and the not so good, I yeah. suppose. Yeah. Huh? Well, and because even in the midst of things that are not so great, you always get a story from somebody that has a positive twist on it. It's, mm-hmm. it's really fascinating when you when you actually go to these places and yeah. you visit them. Yeah. This is a loose diversion, but I think it was about a month after we had visited this place, we then went to Manzanar for the first time. Mm-hmm. And in the visitor center there, which was huge, you had an encounter with somebody who was a descendant, I think, a son. right? Yeah. His mother had been a part of one of the internment camps. Yeah. So that was neat to have had that conversation yeah. and get that, like you say, yeah. that perspective. I think he thought I was following him. So he might have been a little worried about me, but he fascinated me. He mm-hmm. was, you know, he was telling me stories. It wasn't only his mother, it was her brothers. So it was, she had three brothers that were also interred there. Just uh, so fascinating. Yeah. Not, that's a diversion, but. Yeah. A story for another yeah. day. We'll yeah. talk about yeah. Manzanar, yeah. but back to Missoula. Yes. Fort Missoula. So as I said, there's a lot of structures. There's about 20 preserved historic buildings there. And they just bring the whole thing to life. 
absolutely fascinating how you could walk into a building, get a very short synopsis on its history, but just being there just brings everything to reality. Some of it, I don't know how much of the history has been twisted or turned or false or how much of it's true, but I think there's a definite, the story itself has truth in it. Mm-hmm. And you can't get away from it. It's there. Yeah. So one of the things we learned about is this museum, for example, has 50,000 artifacts. And one of the things I think it struck both you and I as we were making our way through some of the indoor spaces, and there's like a few buildings that preserve military history, Mm -hmm. out of their 50,000 artifacts, it almost felt in some of these buildings like they took everything and tried to display as much as they could. It just felt in some of these places it was, it was so overload. so dense. Yeah. yeah, so there was like too much to take in that in some of the instances, like it was hard to take in anything because you didn't know what to focus on. And so that was my one critique of the place was I think they would be able to tell some of the history better by scaling back the amount of visual stimulus. Because yeah. like there are ev- separate buildings. So so there is the first building that we went into, we paid that small fee and it was very well put together. And you mm-hmm. had, had two sides to it. One was the internment camps and the other was the history of the fort itself. And it was very well put together. Th- that was the best yeah. building. Yeah. yeah. Then you there's a building behind that that I think somebody else put together. I think it was a separate entity that put that museum display together. And that's the one that was so haphazard. Mm-hmm. And so there was so much stuff you could not take it all in. It was too much. But we did our best. <laughs> so, we, you know, we ended up spending two and a half hours exploring this place. I think if you're in Missoula, from what we were able to gather, this is probably the like the cornerstone historic exhibit that's available to visitors. So when in Missoula, I think overall, I mean, we, we enjoyed it. Yeah. We were yes. also there on a super hot day, too. It wasn't too, too bad. Yeah. So, um, you know, sharing with you one of the things you can do in Missoula. So during our time in Missoula, just a few more things. We ended up going to a church on a Sunday at St. Francis Xavier Church. So it was Sunday. We go to church on Sunday. And we, we had driven by, I think, the night before this church. And from the outside, just an absolutely beautiful structure. Very historic. Built in 1892. It's the tallest church in the city. And when we walked in Sunday morning, just you know, from that first appearance, it was what I almost picture in my mind of a church that would have been built in the time that it was built, you know, just glass kind of Gothic looking. You had paintings that were over a hundred years old. You you turned around in the back. There was a beautiful visually looking pipe organ in the loft, but it would turn out for the service that we attended. The organ was not used. Instead, we got music by the piano player in the front and the, Cantor, I guess you yeah, say. which um, I'm not going to go into super detail. I'm just going to say that I was somewhat disappointed with the, the liturgy and the way it was presented. It just didn't it didn't match with the aesthetic of the building. I'm sure I'm in the <laughs> modern minority on this, but that's one one person, two persons' perspectives, probably right. Yes, but I have to say that. The music during a mass really creates the setting of the mass. Mm -hmm. And it gives the mass its sacredness. It's part of its sacredness. 
it's hard to put yourself in that place of spiritual place. Yeah. And yeah, that spiritual yeah. place where, you know, you've got this beautiful liturgy happening and you're hearing music that is so disconnected from the liturgy. It's really, really hard to concentrate and to focus. It was very schmaltzy. <laughs> it was the kind of stuff that, I mean, what was being played was all just musically speaking struck me as something that I wouldn't turn my ear if I heard it like in uh, a bar and the cocktail pianist no, was playing. It, it was, that it was kind just of, the, the tempo of it, yeah, the beat yeah. of it. I mean, it, it's almost like, you know, you're, you're going to get up and, and, and the stylism. Do, yeah, yeah. Do the tango or something right in the middle of mass. And so it's just not, it's not our cup of tea. Oh yeah. And then the icing on the cake for me. And yes, I suppose I was, I was angry at this. Well, I could see if you're not Catholic, as I say this, you might be thinking, why is this a big deal? If you are Catholic and especially traditional Catholic, you might understand why this got under our craw. But you know, mass had ended and then the piano At pi least mass ended. Yes. Mass was done and then the pianist lunged into Burt Bacharach's What the World Needs Now is Love, Sweet Love. Which Which is true. Oh is okay. true. It's, it's true. a wonderful song. <laughs> In its proper setting, yes, I like those the '60s pop stuff, but not at mass. It's it doesn't belong not at mass. No, didn't belong. It felt so outside of everything that we understand yeah. well, to be liturgy. Yeah, actually, I mean, it, <laughs> in in the context of the mass, it's actually forbidden. So, oh, well, right, yeah. right, right. But even afterwards, it just seems so out of place. But anyway, so we, we digress. So there you go. <laughs> so when when you're in Missoula, it is a beautiful church to walk around the outside, maybe even the inside. Peek in the inside. Beautiful. Yeah. I don't know what other service options you have in Missoula. So, but you know, and it is on the National Register of Historic Places. That it is, and so we do like to see historic places. Mm -hmm. And then we spend some time in downtown Missoula, just walking around. Walk around. I think by this time we were, this was our last chance to get some souvenirs too. In yes, our limited, in our limited packing mm -hmm. that was available to us. So they had lots of shops, lots of restaurants. And then of course we have the added burden of trying to find something that suits us because we're pescatarians. So yes. that was a little tough. Yeah. But we did find a place that worked for us that we enjoyed. I, think I enjoyed it quite, quite, quite enjoyed, yeah. which was the Tamarack Brewing Company. Mm -hmm. They had great food. They had great beer. Really good beer. It was really good. We started with, they have a rye beer called Rye Sally Rye. I love the names that mm -hmm. they come up with. And it was excellent. And then we had a salmon sandwich. And then you had that PETA, P-E-T-A, brew bread was it kind of like a pizza dough-ish type yeah, of Yeah, but it was thing. really, really chewy. I had, I remember tasting it, and I was, it was really, really chewy. Yeah. This was one of those places that when you're done eating your meal, there's no room in the tummy for dessert. No, but yeah. we did go back again. We did, because I think mm -hmm. the second night that we were in Missoula, we, we actually did try to find another place to eat, because we typically will not eat at the same place like twice in a row. Mm -hmm. But as we were walking around the city the following day, nothing was catching anything. our interest. Yeah. And we ended up 
back at Tamarack Brewing Company mm -hmm. for a second night. And we had fish tacos, fish and chips. So kudos to Very Tamarack good. because yep. for two people who almost never go to the same place twice for a meal, you got us twice. Yeah, so you sure did. Enjoyed it. For lodging in Missoula, we ended up staying at the Holiday Express and Suites. Clean room, generally quiet. And I think when you picture a Holiday Inn, what you see is what you get. And that's what we got. Yeah. So, you know. But it was, it was nice. It was, it was uh, nice. The staff was really nice. It was good. Yeah. And under the category of if we had more time, and we actually talked about this, but after looking at the description, we um, hesitated a bit. But there is a place called the Garnet Ghost Town that's within a couple of hours of Missoula that sounds super interesting. But it sounded as if the road that you have to take to get there mm -hmm. is one that could be a little difficult on your car and I think could be a little um, precarious in some places. Yeah, yeah. And given the rental that we were in that already had sustained some minor damage that we were <laughs> concerned about, we didn't want to... Uh, press our luck with that. Yeah, so I suppose if you have an appropriate vehicle, this might be an interesting place to see. I think it's a place I would read about and just know what you're in for on the journey. But again, it sounded intriguing. We only had so much time in Missoula and decided that we were going to do the other things that we did. Right. So How fun fact time, fun Julia. Facts. I love fun facts. Missoula used to be underwater. It sits at the bottom of a valley carved out during the last ice age. The valley was under 2,000 feet of water, known as the Glacial Lake Missoula, until the bursting of a giant ice dam in Idaho some 15,000 years ago. How do they know that? That's so fascinating. Geological detectives. Yes. Surfing. There is surfing, believe it or not, in downtown Missoula. Missoulians who are out for an evening stroll might stop on a bridge downtown where you can catch surfers riding waves in the middle of an otherwise gentle Clark Fork River. So you've got a man-made Brennan's Wave, is what they call it there, built right in the middle of the city for the enjoyment of locals who want to get a chance to surf. Even though there's no ocean waves in Missoula, they found a way to uh, provide some surfing fun. Missoula is also the home of the first woman ever elected to Congress. She said, I may be the first woman member of Congress, but I won't be the last. And she was right. Her name was Jeanette Rankin, and she was elected into Congress in 1916. Now we're 100 years later, and there are over 100 elected congresswomen now. So a recap of our time in Missoula. You know, I think I speak for both of us that on this part of the leg of the Montana trip, Big Hole National Battlefield was the highlight. Fair to say for you? Fair to say. Because it sure was for me. Yeah. And as we said, Missoula, more of a suburb type of town. So, you know, it just worked for us because it was, it got us on our way to Kalispell. Mm -hmm. And after the things we spoke about, the, uh, our last morning, we would make an early drive from Missoula to Kalispell where, so here's a tip. If you find yourself traveling throughout Montana and you're going back to Kalispell to catch your flight back home, there's more than one airport. So... I don't know what I had put into the ways, There's but... There's an international airport. And a non-international, yeah. Which is, is small planes. There's no big planes. It was yeah. small planes. So we were 
driving very confused. to try to get to our flight and things just were not looking right. And it was ways was telling us to, I think at one point to like turn onto the tar- tarmac. Yeah. I'm like, well, first of all, we don't see the right size planes and we shouldn't be going on a tarmac. And this doesn't look <laughs> yeah. exactly like where we landed and uh, somehow figured out that we had the wrong airport. Mm-hmm. So don't go to the wrong airport if you're going to Kalispell. And this, again, rounds out our recap of things we did on Montana. So, geez, we spent quite a number of episodes. There was so much to do. It was a great trip. It was a great trip. Yeah. I loved it. I loved it. And and it was a place that was kind of in that family talk my dad did. You know, the places he wanted to go was Montana. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of one of those fulfilled type of things for my dad. Yeah. So that was kind of cool. So, you know, we hope you get a chance to go back in the archives. If you haven't heard the prior episodes on the Montana trip, we'll take you through Glacier, through Lewis and Clark journey in Great Falls, through things in Helena, all kinds of stuff. And as you listen to those, we hope that you hear something that helps you plan your future adventures. So thank you so much for joining us. And if you're not subscribing to us yet, take a minute and hit the subscribe button in Apple, Spotify, or your favorite source of podcasts and catch up on the our future episodes. And we really would appreciate it if you left us a review. We also have a YouTube channel, The Places Where We Go, and would certainly enjoy if you would subscribe to that also and hit the bell for notifications. Lots of fun things to see on the mm-hmm. YouTube channel. Lots of fun things. So... Goodbye, Montana. Next time when we're back with you, we'll be off somewhere else. I don't know exactly where, but we'll be going somewhere. So we hope you come back and join us and uh, we'll keep on traveling together. If you have any comments or info to share with us about travel, you can write us at comments at theplaceswherewego.com. You can also follow us on social media. Right now we're on Twitter and Instagram, both at the places where we go. Thanks for joining us, and we hope to see you at the places where we go. See you next time. Bye now.